can't go in there. Is the killer in there? Probably. It's a horror podcast. It's going to frighten and disturb us. We're doing this at our own risk. <laughs> Ready? Ready for the dark tales when we dare not close our eyes. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Are we rolling? Yeah, we're on. All right then, let's spill beans. David Cummings, a man, some say. Some Some say. A myth, perhaps. Universal synonym for fear, most definitely. A figure drenched to the elbows in such villainous vile doings that it would be perfectly excusable if what you're about to hear results in a shriek of outright terror into the ear of the nearest friend or loved one. Sadly, you are alone. No one is saying unwanted. No one is explicitly saying that. However, there is much more to the story than you currently know. C. Cummings, while more recently known for his audio and fashion industry exploits, has been a fixture in the archaeological and anthropological community for several... cult. ...generous handfuls of years. It's really not polite to talk about how many. You see, it all began long ago, when, having collected a humble sum from knife work in various traveling bazaars... He bought passage on a small merchant ship, and soon found himself adventuring across the open seas. But all around, the subtle smell of plunder drifted on sea breezes, tempting him toward nasty, bad, bad misdeeds. And after a time... He listened to these impulses, like sickly whispers from within. But he only acted against those who had already proven themselves morally incurable. Even the most disgracefully notorious figures across the seas began to speak his name only in hushed whispers. This jovial, blood-drenched legend. Slinging puns and slitting throats with equal ease often simultaneously. Those same notorious figures began to disappear from every corner of the briny expanse as this new terror of the moonlight made his way from ship to ship, horde to horde, consuming. In this way, an absolute fortune was secured, the first and most necessary step to any plan with true staying power. You know, I'm starting to wonder if we have time for this level of detail. But they deserve to know everything. What he's done. What he's tried to do. The sacrifices we've all made. But the time, though. Do we have it? You're right. We'll have to find another opportunity. 
They will continue to trust him until we're able to get the whole story out. It just may take some time for them to properly understand. Scatter! No! Act natural. Don't unplug it, just... Oh, hey. Oh, wow. Hello, all. What, uh... Hey! <laughs> Hello. Hiya. You were narrating about me while I was in the bathroom again, weren't you? Well, you do have the good microphone. It picks up all of our warm, round tones with such succulent sensitivity. Warm tones. Could you maybe... Uh, I'm gonna have to disinfect that when I get back. You know they're not gonna believe any of that stuff anyway. And shouldn't you three be getting ready to disembark? Go on now, fetch your backpacks and lunchboxes. Right you are, Chief. Phew, I sure will be glad to get out of here. Breathe some fresh air, take in some of that sky, pound the pavement. Oh God, I hate that pavement. <clears throat> it's not that I don't love having you all here inescapably within hearing distance, wheezing as you eat all my porridge, my dehydrated eggs, hammocks and God knows what else swinging all through the night. It's just, uh, there was once such a thing as boundaries on a man's submarine, you know? Ah, well, with time away, I'm sure I'll be hankering for my most private undersea moments to be interrupted by these little skits of yours once again. <laughs> Can you imagine? D I wouldn't dare. Land, huh? You, uh, still say that on one of these, right? Aha, then we've breached the mighty Puget. Alrighty then, all ashore who's getting the hell off my watercraft. To those stalwart submariners returning below, Captain Sanderson has full hosting control in addition to the helm. Look to her if there are any issues while I'm topside. The last few regions of our new targeting array should be coming online in the next few hours. We've been traveling all over the world in our various machines for months deploying these things, allowing us to pinpoint our listeners and beam the show directly to those who need it most. Not to mention how much it will narrow down our advertising demographic. <clears throat> it has all been leading to this. Your loyalty and perseverance in getting to this point is appreciated. So please, hold yourself in the same high esteem that I most certainly do as we celebrate these little victories. Otherwise, business as usual. Don't descend too many fathoms. Easy on the, uh, the, the knots. I really don't foresee any issues. <laughs> so strange to say, because usually I'd be worried about Peter getting us into some absurd predicaments, but now, well, <clears throat> you know. Still, it's a good thing we found all those recordings he had squirreled away in the archives. He must have been siphoning stories from our submissions box for quite some time. God knows what he was planning to do with them all. Oh, best not to think about it, really. But we have been able to run just enough of them to make it appear that he's still operational. He is still operational, right? Oh, of course. Of course he is. And I have to imagine he'd want it this way. That he'd want us to get some use out of them. You know, I think I even saw some leftover tour stuff. Concept intros and such he must have been working on way back when he was being considered for host in 2018. Man, I wish that could have worked out. Ahoy, hoy! 
We're rapidly approaching our exit, if it's at all possible to up the urgency. Cummings! Why don't you go ahead and use some of those intro segments he left behind? It will lighten the workload a bit. Maybe even help us all get a little... closure. If you're certain they're tame... Oh, I'm sure they'll be just fine. Our security protocols would have flushed them otherwise. Copy that. Connecting to NSP data center. Well, here we go again. 2019, huh? Who would have thought we'd make it? Guta Reisa! Unsealing archived files for user p loop. Oh my, he did leave a mess, didn't he? Oh, strange. Not seen the older tour files David mentioned, but there is a directory structure here titled Tour 2019. That is... Eerily convenient. Instinct would advise I steer clear, but David did say give them a try. I suppose we can always send word to cut the feed from the owl, if it should take a grim turn. There we are. Narrative payload configured. Broadcast will begin shortly. All hands, rig for dive and prepare for spanking downward departure. Firing final Pacific Northwest beacon spread in three, two... Dive, dive, dive! Hello and welcome, dear listeners. This is the No Sleep Podcast. I am... Aren't we all asking ourselves that question? And it is a little personal, don't you think? Who are you, huh? How do you fit into all of this? I'm sorry. I'm I'm sorry I raised my voice. See, if you're hearing this, it means that things are almost certainly going to plan, but, well, we've blown well past our ABCs. Yeah, this is like Plan X. I really didn't want to bring you into this directly. I was hoping there would be another way, any other way. <sighs> C'est la guerre. It is my unpleasant duty to inform you that I made a mistake, that I was outplayed and outflanked, and I utterly failed you. But I will do my best to set things right, you have my word. For now, all that I require of you is a listening ear. It will remain attached to you. If you are able to relax, please do so. If you are unable to relax, welcome to the club. Either way, your best effort is more than sufficient. So, shall we begin again? Oh, I'm, I'm just realizing you have no way to respond. Okay, uh, in our first tale, we join a couple soon after a stressful move, the anxiety of which seems to motivate an increasingly sinister series of sleep-talking incidents. Written by Christopher Maxim and performed by Jeff Clement and Jessica McAvoy, this is My Wife Won't Stop Sleep-Talking.
My wife and I moved into our new apartment just a few months ago. Before this, we lived in a large cottage overlooking a beautiful lake. It was my wife's dream home for the three years we lived there. We didn't want to leave, but it was a necessary step for us. You see, Jessica and I used to live down south. Everything was going well for a while, but my law firm decided to promote me out of the blue. It was unexpected, but I couldn't have been more grateful. Unfortunately, the job entailed transferring to another one of our many branch locations. The one in question was in New England. We spoke long and hard on the matter, but eventually, Jess agreed to the move. It's important to note the dollar doesn't stretch as far up north as it does down south. It's also harder to find employment. That's why we were downgrading our living space. Until Jess could find another job, we would just have to suffer. At least, that's the way she looked at it. Tensions were high the first few weeks after the move. I could tell Jess was irritable. She missed our old house, our old friends, and working a steady job. She had nothing to do with all her free time, so she was bored out of her skull. This led to many fights. For a while, it seemed like we would never settle in. About a month after the move, things started looking up. Jess found temporary work as a part-time editor at the local TV station. She loved the work and couldn't have been happier with her co-workers. I couldn't have been happier for her. Everything seemed to be fine for a while. Not perfect, but fine. This was when the sleep-talking began. It was to be expected, and honestly, I'm surprised it didn't start up sooner. You see... My wife is a restless sleeper whenever there's a big change in her life, good or bad. It happened when we got married, when we moved into our first home, and when she had the miscarriage. I'll touch more on that later. Jess knows she sleep talks because I used to bring it up from time to time. I would laugh each morning recalling the weird things she said the night before. This always made her uncomfortable. She seemed to be embarrassed by it. That's why, after her first night of sleep-talking in our new apartment, I didn't say anything. The sleep-talking went on for a couple of weeks. It was at this time that Jess's temp job at the TV station came to an end. Without a job to keep her mind off of things, her nightly outbursts became much worse. She began screaming at odd times during the night, in which I would be forced to calm her down. One night, her screams turned into tears. As she was crying, she said something I'll never forget. I wish you were dead. I knew my wife was asleep, but as I sat there by her side, calming her as best I could, I felt the need to press the matter. You wish who were dead, hun? To my surprise, she responded... You. This caught me off guard. It's a strange thing to want your husband dead, and even stranger while you're asleep. Why? You're ruining my life. Those four words cut deep. Whether they were meant or merely the product of a tired mind, they were the kind of words that demanded self-reflection. I wondered for a moment if I truly was ruining her life, or at least if 
I were to blame for her night terrors. My wife remained silent for the rest of the night. I know this because I stayed up. Contemplation and worry kept me from getting a good night's rest. I didn't believe for a second that my wife really wanted me dead. But her late-night antics were certainly a cause for concern. Between the screaming episodes and the morbid dialogue, this was the worst her condition had ever been. The next morning, I came pretty damn close to telling her about what had happened, but I kept thinking about how she'd react and what she'd say. It was too much. I didn't want to burden her any more than I already had, especially after she'd just been laid off. I also didn't want to have another fight. In light of this, I kept my mouth shut. The following night, the screams were gone. This was a comfort, but a fleeting one. Just as I was about to shut my eyes and call it a night, the sleep talking commenced once again. Sometimes I think about how I do it. I chalked this statement up to pure dream-induced nonsense. But then she continued. While you're asleep in bed, I'll get up and go to the kitchen. I didn't know what she was talking about, but as she kept speaking, it dawned on me. There were some moments of inaudible gibberish, but from the bits and pieces that were fluent, I could paint a pretty good picture of what she was describing. was describing her plan to murder me. As deeply unsettling as this was, I couldn't help but chuckle to myself. I can't say I haven't done some weird things in my own dreams, things I would never do in real life. Jess was mad at me over the move, and she was working out her frustrations while she slept. At least that's what I convinced myself. The sleep talking continued for a few weeks, I hoped that Jess's midnight venting sessions were doing her some good, but without a degree in psychology, I couldn't be certain. All I could do was listen to her ramble about offing me each night and wait for her condition to run its course. The longest her sleep talking had ever lasted was a month, so it was safe to say it would be over soon. A month passed, then two. Jess didn't let up. Every night, it was the same routine. Either incoherent nonsense or babblings about how she'd like to hurt me. It was getting old, but one night changed everything. As my wife slept, she uttered some words that tore right through my heart. I lost my baby because of you. My emotions swirled about and formed a sour concoction that rested in the bed of my stomach. This time, I had to know what she meant. What do you mean, hon? There was a brief moment of silence, but eventually, 
Jess offered me an answer. There was some more gibberish mixed in, but she was able to get her point across. It's just... You made me want kids. You put life in me. This struck a nerve and caused a few tears to roll down my cheeks. It was my idea to have a kid. Jess never wanted children, but she made herself want them for me. That's why, after the miscarriage, I I was surprised to find her absolutely devastated. I had no clue how much she'd warmed up to the idea of having a baby. My tears were interrupted by more sleep-talking of the worst variety. I will kill you. I promise. That was the last thing she said all night. It's been roughly a week since my wife made that promise. As disturbing as that threat was, I could have easily brushed it off with rest, assuming it too was the product of stress and was nothing for me to worry about. Unfortunately, I can't stop worrying about it. Jess is scaring the crap out of me. I'm now taking short naps and sleeping with one eye open. And it's all because of one thing. Now, she's sleepwalking. In our second tale, we meet a man who finds himself contemplating the fable of the Wendigo as he sits with the corpse of his brother, a creature outside slowly digging its way through the snow to the cabin. No pressure. Written by Cash Robertson and performed by Nicole Doolin and Mick Wingert, this is Wendigo Psychosis. A gaunt frame carries the tatters of the remaining humanity of the Wendigo. His antlered head droops as his feral eyes shoot around, looking for his next victim. In life, the Wendigo had been greedy and sinful. In some legends, it was said that the crime for which a man is made into a Wendigo is the act of cannibalism. Stories tell of tribes and villages who turned to cannibalism in times of famine, a few members of the tribe saving themselves from starvation, yet damning themselves to turn into the hellish creature. This old fable echoed through his mind as he cut up what was left of his brother. We had been snowed in for weeks. This, This was the only way. Had he intentionally killed his brother with the purpose of eating him, perhaps it would be different, but he hadn't. Rather, he had done his best to save him. Near the end of his brother's life, he was so sick that he could not even eat the little scraps they had left. 
it was only when the last bit of hope for him had gone that he decided to spare him from suffering any longer. In truth, he was made sick at the thought of eating the flesh and blood of his own flesh and blood. He did not die for this purpose. It was the fever, not I, that killed him. As he repeated this to himself, he continued to work. He spared nothing but the head, which he could not bear to look at, and covered with cloth. He had loved his brother. If he didn't, why would he have given him such mercy and kept him from suffering? It was the sick truth that one of them must live through this storm. By any means necessary. When the storm ended, if the storm ended, he would go into town and file a missing persons report for his brother. He would tell them that he had gone out in the storm and never came back. Even if he told them that he did what he did out of necessity, they would not see it that way. They might execute him, or even worse, institutionalize him. It was a good thing that most of the evidence would disappear over the next few days. The first bite made him vomit. The second did too. The third did not. But it was the heaviest of the bites, and sat like a rock in his stomach. Not being able to get down any more, he took a break and went up to the second story, which was now the only vantage point out of their cabin. The snow had stopped for now, but the clouds were hanging in the sky still. He knew it would be dark soon. He thought again about his brother, and decided he needed to wait one more day before he tried to eat any more. As cold as it was, he wouldn't spoil. He felt a little sick again at thinking about someone he once knew in these terms, but it subsided. He sat beneath a window and looked out into the surrounding forest, the hours slipping by. He snapped out of his trance and looked around. It was now pitch black outside. The terror in his heart was so great that he had forgotten what he had done, and he peered out into the darkness to try and locate the source of the call. It cut through the night right into his very soul. It was not a human scream, nor an animal one, nor any scream from this world. He likened it to the call of an elk, except that whatever was making it was clearly no elk. It was shrill, hollow, but at the same time resounding throughout the forest as it shot to his core. He sat beneath the window all night, on guard from whatever creature had let loose such a sound. In the back of his mind, he knew that even if the creature were to present itself, he could not see it in the darkness. It may as well have been right under him. All at once, he realized it was now early in the morning. The light began to return, faintly glowing behind the fog. A shambling form emerged from the edge of the woods and slowly forced its way through the snow. He opened the frozen window to try to get a better picture through the mist. He could not make out many details, but as the form began to get closer, he could see that it most resembled the shape of a man save for two great antlers atop its head. It was terribly tall and thin, 
yet somehow could force its way through the snow with great strength. Its broad hands were sweeping the snow away from it as it purposefully tried to make its way towards the cabin. As soon as he realized the creature's path, he began to run down the stairs to board up the doors. He remembered, however, the immeasurable feet of snow that were between himself and the creature. He continued to watch it as it got closer and closer. It was so close now that, were it to look up, it would surely see him. But it didn't. It continued on its mission, staggering and shambling along the way. Eventually, it reached the cabin and began to look around on the ground. It was looking for something, surely, but it was unclear what. Then it began to try and dig downwards in the snow towards the cabin's wall. At first, it was not close to anything, but as it continued shoveling bit by bit away, it began to inexplicably find its way closer and closer to where the cabin's front door was located. It was as though it knew where it should be. It somehow could not quite find it. His heart was pounding at the sight of this creature beneath him. It was so close now that if he were to try and close the window, it would surely know of his presence. He could only sit and watch. He knew all too well what it was doing. It was trying to find a way in. It kept working, but as it continued to shovel, the surrounding snow would fall back into place. Eventually, it grew frustrated and began to claw at its own skin, letting dark blood flow into the snow. He thought of how the blood had oozed just that way from his brother as he had cut him up, and he could not help but throw up. The creature's head shot up towards him. Now he could see its face, or where its face would have been. The antlers were poking out from a crude cloth-like mask. The only things visible were the impressions of its sunken dead eyeballs and its mouth. Its lips were tattered like shredded rags, and its teeth were all but gone. And it saw him now. Had the creature somehow jumped up to the window and killed him at once, he would have died in much less a state of terror than he was in now. Not because of what the creature did, but because of what it didn't do. Upon seeing him, it didn't continue to dig. It stared at him for what seemed an eternity, and then, slowly, sat down in the snow. This seemingly undecipherable action gave him even more distress. He wished it would somehow end him at once and spare him from this torment. Then, he realized what it was doing. It was waiting for the snow to melt. Go ahead and wait! I've seen storms like this before. You could be waiting for days more. But the creature did not seem to even comprehend what was being said. As the fog began to fade away into the late morning, he could see it more and more clearly. Its skin was gray and cracked, except for the parts which the creature had just torn. The gashes were still slowly dripping dark blood, leaving a ring of crimson around the snow on which the creature was sitting. Hours must have gone by, yet this thing still sat patiently. The sky was very clear now, 
illuminating its grotesque form even more. It was totally emaciated, sickly and bony. He was sure it must have felt cold, yet it did not appear to make any fuss about sitting in the below-freezing temperatures with no clothes or cover, save for the rags on its face. I hope you're enjoying it down there! He pretended that he was getting some sort of advantage over the thing by berating it from above. In truth, it was more for his own sanity. He had not been able to speak to anyone for weeks. His brother had been too sick to talk, so he was not accustomed to talking with something which would give no response. He continued to try and get something, anything out of it, when it raised its hands to its head. At first, it looked as though it was rubbing its head in pain. However, it became clear to him that it was now trying to remove the cloth that was wrapped around its head. It was struggling at first, its nails clawing into the skin underneath and soaking the rag in more blood. However, to his horror, the creature finally got hold of the rag and began to unwind it. It twisted and unraveled the cloth, which seemed to be yards long at this point, until its face was finally visible in the sunlight. Upon seeing it, dread shot through him. It was not the creature's face. It was the face of his brother. Oh, God! Are you here to punish me? The creature continued to look right at him. He was sick! Was I to let him suffer longer? Was I to eventually come to the same fate as him? If I am being tormented for my, my unwillingness to die, then so be it. The creature still made no acknowledgement of what he was saying and continued to watch him. If even the man without sin suffers here on Earth, then so must I one hundred times for what I've done. But I will see to it that you do too. Who knows how long you may wait. And I hope you do wait. I hope it becomes unbearable for you to sit down there. I hope you can know what I felt. To see your one source of food, yet being unable to attain it. God willing, we shall be here for weeks more. He was still yelling down at the creature when he felt a drop of water on the back of his neck. It startled him as he turned to look up and was met with another drop on his forehead. Again, another drop of water fell onto his face. It was dripping from the icicles above the window. Slowly but steadily, they continued to drip onto him. He turned again to look at the creature, still sitting in a ring of its own blood. However, it was no longer gawking at him without response. It was grinning at him now, waiting patiently for the snow to melt. Thank you.
In our third tale, a woman attends a support group for grief, having recently suffered loss herself. There, she meets a soft-spoken stranger who, rather than offering her a new path forward, offers the chance to bring this loved one back. Written by Karen Park and performed by Aaron Lillis, Sarah Ruth Thomas, Nicole Doolin, David Cummings, Dan Zapula, and Ellie Hirschman, attend these groups for yourself in Cry For Me. I wasn't always such a terrible human being. Spending my time the way I do now, well, I'll keep it up until the day that I've finally gotten back what's mine. After that, maybe I can return to some version of myself I recognize. But I'm no victim. I don't want you to get the wrong idea. I walked into this with my eyes open. That's why I sit here in the cold, rickety folding chair in the church common room across from Marilyn and will her to cry. That I still feel him here with me. I saw him that day, saw his body with the needle still in his arm. But I can't help expecting to open the door and see him on the couch with his laptop on his knees and his hand in a bag of Doritos. Marilyn sobs, and I clutch the cold thing in my jacket pocket. Come on. And then, as usual, Sandra cuts Marilyn off to make it all about Sandra. And it's even worse when they're young. My Jill, only six years old. I still don't understand why God took her from me. No real tears from Sandra. Maybe there were real ones years ago, but little Jill would be in her late 30s now. Sandra is all dried out at this point. I sigh too loudly. Lindsay, are you ready to share? The group leader turns the focus toward me, and I almost forget to respond to the name they know me by. No, not yet. I wonder how long they'll let me sit and listen to their tragedies without paying in kind. When the hour is done, I sling my bag over my shoulder and stick close to Marilyn, following her out to the dark street, not quite done with her yet. I was thinking about you the other day, that thing on TV about the country's opiate epidemic, all those poor kids. It has the desired effect, and Marilyn's eyes swim behind pools. I know. So many mothers are feeling what I feel, and nobody can do anything about it. I press on, long past hating myself for rubbing someone's face in their own pain. The kids like yours, that's the worst. So young. Their lives are wasted, just unlived. Who knows what they would have done with those lives if they'd had the chance? I know from experience that the what-if, hypothetical future kind of comment will really get them going. She cries, leaning on my arm, and I hold the jar in my pocket tightly. Sure, her tears are making a tiny but important impact. Like I said, I wasn't 
always such a terrible human being. I used to be compassionate and kind. I think I still am on some level. I mean, I'm not actually causing anyone new pain myself, but rather just wringing out the last drops of feeling from old pain. Something interesting I've learned this past year or so is that pain is more of a cocktail than a shot. A complex interplay of jagged and soft things that alternately cut and soothe each other as the feelings flow through a body. In my more optimistic moments, I tell myself that what I do to these people heals them faster. But most of the time, I'm not thinking at all, just trying to rush through this quickly so it can be over. When I get home, I take the lacrimatory out of my pocket, the jar for collecting tears. This one is ancient. The one who gave it to me claimed it was a relic from Roman times, and putting aside for a moment his taste for the dramatic, I could almost believe it since any decoration the vessel once sported has been worn away by hands and time. And any edges once sharp have been smoothed like sea glass. It's thin enough to almost see through, and always cold, possibly made of a marble or alabaster that my hands never are able to warm. I gently place it in its usual resting place, inside a drawer in the bookcase, willing myself to walk away from it and not to do what I really want to do, which is to hold it up to the light and see if the level is any closer to the top than it was yesterday. But I know it'll just frustrate me to see how little progress was made by three tragic support group meetings, one visit to the children's ward of the hospital, and sitting in on a morning funeral of someone I don't know. I know I shouldn't, but I do it anyway. So, so carefully. I move it to the lamp and barely make out that the jar is maybe seven-eighths of the way full of the viscous liquid. This won't be over until I reach the top, and it has been many months since I started. Today's Ryan's group. That's what I call it in my mind, although he's just a participant like me. His wife, Elizabeth, is in St. Bernadette's in the middle stages of ovarian cancer. It's not looking good for her, but he never cries. Even when he talks about her and how young they are and how they wanted two kids, a boy and a girl, and they hope to get a puppy with the arrival of each baby so they can all grow up together, and how that will never happen now. I wonder whether his tears would be worth more, somehow plump up my collection by being rarer and therefore weightier. I sit next to him, feeling the grief like heat coming off his body, and listen to the others talk. I can't stop stealing glances at Ryan since he's my type. The type I never seem to date but like to look at. Dark-eyed, shy, college boyish. After the group, he and I share a cigarette in the dark up against the building. And without even deciding it out loud, we go to my house. He goes upstairs ahead of me and eases open the wrong door on the second floor. Even though I told him my bedroom is the one across the hall from that one. And before he can see inside... Before I can see inside and ruin everything, I slam the door shut and pull him angrily by the shirt into my bedroom, and we fuck. There's no other way to say what it is we do together, circumstances being what they are. Danny was eight on his last day alive, wearing a black Batman shirt that had caused a big fight that morning between us. It had been in the hamper for a reason. 
big orange juice stain covered half of the Batman logo, but that didn't stop him from pulling out this smelly, wrinkled thing and refusing to take it off, even as I glared down at him, having surrendered, while he smugly ate his Cheerios by the handful. Dry, as usual, despite my efforts to get him to try them with milk. He hates milk. Hated milk. Well, at least there's that. I let him have the last word in the form of his favorite breakfast and stained shirt on our last day together. My ex had honked from the driveway then, and Danny jumped up, almost knocking over his orange juice. Hey, hey, slow down. I handed him his backpack, full of what he would need during his weekend away with his dad visiting his grandparents. Bye, Mon. He kissed me with orange juice breath and ran out the door. He grew up calling me the same thing his dad called me, shortening Monica to its first syllable. And I could never make Danny understand he was supposed to call me something different than his dad did. I really wanted him to give me that special name only your kids called you, but gave up after a while. Probably nobody noticed the difference in the single sound but me anyway. I waved to my ex from the front porch and watched his familiar profile as he turned aside to back out of the driveway, hugging myself against the cold. I wonder if the chills I had that morning were a kind of premonition of what would happen a few hours later on the highway, as a distracted driver changed lanes without looking, setting off a chain reaction that would end in four fatalities, including Danny as my ex-husband's car wound up smashed into a tree on the side of the road. I'm late to Ryan's group, and my usual seat next to him on the love seat is taken. But when I see who has taken it, my blood lands in my feet and I see pools. It's him. The one I met months ago. The one who made me what I am today. He doesn't acknowledge me, but instead looks around at the group members with an expression of concern. Masquerading as someone who has lost someone, or is losing someone, or is suffering in any way, which he isn't because he can't. I don't know where to look, and instead close my eyes and concentrate on those who share their stories, reaping their pain, trying not to think about what that man wants from me, why he's come now can't be because it's time for him to collect my jar. It isn't full yet. He rubs his palms together in that way I remember, making that sound like dead grasses blowing against each other in a night wind. Taking into account the ancientness of his eyes, his face should be weathered and lined, but it isn't. It's too smooth, and his skin is too fine. When group is over, I am resigned and gather my things slowly expecting him to bring his coppery old man smell over to me. But he's walking away from me. I see him put a hand on Ryan's shoulder. They're leaving together. I rush to stop it, to remove that hand and prevent him from telling Ryan his terrible and irresistible secrets. But other people leaving get in the way, and when I get outside, they've disappeared. I have no idea where Ryan lives, but anyway, it's probably too late. I felt that same hand on my back last year, back when I came to a group like this for real. As I shared my sadness and hopelessness from losing Danny, I'm not sure what I was looking for, 
but at the end of the meeting, I found it soothing when the stranger who had sat across from me put his hand on my shoulder on our way out. That is, until I turned around and saw his face up close. A face that just wasn't quite right. He whispered to me when we were the last ones in the dark parking lot. He always spoke in a whisper. What would you give to get Danny back? Anything. I'd give anything to have him back. I can show you a way. I had immediately thought back to that nightmarish time a few months before. The police at my door, the hospital, the funeral. My head swam with conflicting desires to believe versus reject this information. It was impossible, but exactly what I most wanted. But impossible. What are you talking about? You shouldn't say things like that. What's wrong with you? He didn't reply, but just stood there watching me, rubbing his palms together slowly, making a sad, dry rasp. I was compelled to raise my eyes and look at him. His old, empty eyes met mine, and there was a kind of hum and something clicking into place, and somehow I knew he was telling the truth. In whatever reality he inhabited, this process would work. He could do what he said. He could bring Danny back to me. If you want him back, I need something from you. Fill this lacrimatory with tears. He handed me a four-inch tall, pale, cylindrical jar with a stopper on top. It was veiny and cold, bringing to mind an embalmed body. When it's full, I'll come to you. I'll take it, and you'll get Danny back. I imagined how easy it would be to fill it myself with my own tears. Pictured myself going back into the room I never entered, lying down on his bed and smelling his Star Wars pillowcase. I could knock it out in a weekend easy. Somehow he heard me thinking. No, they cannot be your tears. They must be the tears of others. Fill it to the top, and I'll come for it. But, but how? How do I collect them? Take them? Just be with people. Witnessing. Absorb their pain. And the tears will appear in the lacrimatory. He held up the open jar for me to see. I've given you a start. I looked inside the open jar at the thin film of liquid in the bottom, and then I looked at all the space in there I would have to fill up all that emptiness. Ryan is different the next time I see him at group. The seat next to him is empty again, so I take it. His leg is jumping as he sits on the love seat, and his eyes are darting around the room. They'll only meet mine for a second before going elsewhere. I know what he's doing. He's searching for suffering in the room so he can harvest it. But there's not enough here for both of us. When we're done, Ryan follows me out. He wants to talk about Danny. He wants to get me to cry. Don't do this, Ryan. You never share your story. It's important. I know what's in your pocket. 
He goes white. You? That man from the other night? Yeah. Oh. How long have you... Had a jar? Almost a year now. A year? How long is it gonna take to fill this up, to get Elizabeth back the way she was? It occurs to me that while Danny is gone, Elizabeth is still alive. I guess she's in a bad enough state to rate this sort of help, though. I don't know. Sometimes I'll go a whole day and it's like the level never changes. Sometimes I wonder if I'm doing it wrong. He didn't really explain things. Ryan has no clue about the rules yet, and I don't see how it would benefit me to give away what I earned with such effort. I knew a little about the dark web from my ex, and I managed to find my way to an occult-related bulletin board there. After sorting through a lot of crazy posts about demon summoning, spellcasting, and the like, I maneuvered my way to a section populated by ones who knew about the lacrimatory. Of course, on the regular internet, I found plenty on lacrimatories. They're a real thing people used to use. In ancient times, tears would be collected in bottles and buried with the deceased. In more modern days, while soldiers were away, there are accounts of women collecting tears to show their returning husbands how much they had missed them. But to find the hidden story of the crematories and the power they have when given to you on purpose, you have to go to the dark web and its shady bulletin boards. I'm not sure how reliable and accurate the postings are, but I follow the rules that make sense to me. Like how keeping it somewhere dark and cold keeps the lacrimatory and its contents more stable. Sounds like basic physics to me. Or how only pain-related tears work, not ones from laughing or love. One look in the whispering man's dead eyes tells you he's not interested in those. But there's a good chance some of the rules in the postings are bullshit. Like one saying that you can make your own lacrimatory by casting a spell on an ordinary jar and then summon as many people from the other side as you want. And I ignore posts like the ones claiming that actually causing someone pain and collecting that will accelerate your progress. I'm not that desperate yet. How close are you to filling your jar? Could be tomorrow, could be next year. I have no idea. If I were you, I'd be working 24-7. Why are you here with me? You should be out there filling that thing up, getting your son back faster. It doesn't work like that. You don't make any progress when you're burned out. The jar won't fill. Believe me, it wears on you, Ryan, listening to these people day after day, trying to keep the ugliness out of your own soul. When I first started, I would go home at the end of the day and just puke my guts out and drink. Oh, how I had drunk in the beginning. Icy vodka straight out of the freezer was the only way to block out the stories I heard in these groups. The stories of loss that magnified my own in terrible ways. And then there was the discovery that I could kill two birds with one stone. Every bar had a lost soul slumped on a stool who needed to tell a sad story. And plenty of alcohol for me to drink while I collected it. I took on stories of regret, guilt, horrible abuse and crimes. And I was unable to look away. I had to absorb it all into the jar. It's not as easy as you think to listen to these stories and then let them go and live your normal life. Go to work, do the laundry, talk to your mom on the phone. It's hard to feel okay after hearing so much shit in such detail, in such huge quantities. The whispering man won't prepare you for that, but you'll see for yourself. The man who gave me the jar? Who? What is he? Do you really want to know? 
Ryan's energy is still frantic as we walk through the parking lot. I remember that feeling. Seeing a miracle being offered and being afraid someone would yank it away. I know a way he can work off some of that energy. I follow him to his car. We get inside. As the car warms up, I think about the whispering man and why he came to both me and Ryan at the same time, forcing us to compete in the same location. Maybe that's part of his game, to dilute our pool of resources, a way to postpone the moment he has to deliver on his promises to us. I'm so close, though. Well, Ryan has only begun collecting, but it's not as if I expected the man to make it easy. He's not kind. I have no delusions that he's offering this solution as a way to help us feel better. I don't know what he's getting out of this. All that matters is that I get my Danny back. I turn to Ryan. I think he's... But before I can finish my sentence, everything goes black. I used to lie in bed and wonder what it would be like when Danny came back to me. Would it be like a rewinding of everything that happened since he died, and I'd go back to our last morning together and never experience losing him at all? Or would it be that he would knock on the door, like it hadn't been his body crumpled in the car after all, but someone else's? Just one big misunderstanding. I couldn't bring myself to ask the one who gave me the jar. I didn't want to talk with him any more than I had to. The first thing I see when I open my eyes is a poster of Chewbacca and Han Solo that brings back so many memories my eyes fill with tears. Yes, cry. I try to turn toward the voice, but he is behind me. Moving my head makes it pound. Ryan, what happened? What did you do to me? He walks in front of me and leans on the child-sized desk, Danny's desk and looks at my face closely. Sorry I had to knock you out. I wasn't sure how to do it right. I don't have a lot of experience with that kind of thing. Get out of this room! Let me out of this room! I pull on the duct tape binding my hands to the chair. Nope. I need your tears. Elizabeth needs them. You can't use them. So let me have them. I glance towards my pocket, but Ryan sees me and raises an object in each hand. My almost full crematory in one, his almost empty one in the other. I know I'm taking a shortcut here, but I don't care. And you might not believe me, but I am sorry to do this to you, to take advantage of all the effort you've put in. I just don't have the kind of time that you had to slowly fill your jar. Elizabeth doesn't have that kind of time. I struggle against the duct tape handcuffs while trying to ignore my aching head, and I stare at the image of Danny kneeling in the front row of his soccer team picture. He'd look to me for approval after every save, every goal he made. A tear trickles down my cheek. I cry for an hour or so as... Ryan paces in and out of the room, and I realize not all my tears are tears of pain. I laugh cry a bit as Ryan turns the pages of a photo album filled with chubby baby Danny in front of my face. My tears come from love, not from pain, and my only consolation is that Ryan can't use all of those tears. The whispering man can't have them. There's more sweet than bitter in there. Those tears are just for me. 
He holds our jars up to the light and compares them. What are you doing? Using the shortcut I told you about. I'm taking the tears you've collected and adding them to mine. You've got enough to fill my jar up. If not all the way, then pretty close. I'll be able to bring Elizabeth home soon. I watch, my teeth clenched, as Ryan pries the lid off his lacrimatory first. He struggles to remove it, twisting and pulling on it, his face red from effort. Finally, the lid, more of a stopper, comes off with a strong pop that sounds like a gunshot, and Ryan reacts to the sound by jerking back like he has been hit. He drops the lid and jar on the desk with a clatter and frantically rubs his eyes in a panic. He turns to me, and I see in the dim light that his eyes are bleeding. Great red drops trickle down his face like tears, at first slowly, then quickly one after the other, landing in a pool on the carpet. He falls to his knees, moaning and holding his head. At this point, there's no reason to clue Ryan in on the number one rule on the dark web bulletin board about the crematories. The one rule everyone seems to know. Never, ever, ever open a lacrimatory. Ever. That much concentrated pain is not for us to mess with. I hope I can be forgiven for not giving him that tidbit of information when he really needed it. Ryan tries to cram the lid back on, but it's no use. He staggers to his feet and runs from the room with shallow sobs. It takes me 20 minutes of hard work to wrestle my way out of the duct tape securing my hands. I grab my own lacrimatory and look for Ryan, but all I find is a trail of blood drops leading out my front door. I never did find out what happened to him, but I have my suspicions. Life goes on after that, going to work, attending the usual support groups, and having sad conversations with my ex. I don't see Ryan at that particular group anymore, but new faces come and go, leaving their bits and pieces inside the ancient container in my pocket. Until that one morning when I wake up ready for work and go to get the jar from the drawer, and it isn't there. I turn toward a noise coming from the kitchen, my heart racing. I stand in the kitchen doorway, breathless, as I watch my son, Danny, sitting there at the kitchen table in a clean, stainless Batman shirt, pouring milk onto his Cheerios before taking a bite. Hi, Mom. In our fourth tale, a reporter is contacted by a young woman who promises a scandalous scoop regarding the Catholic boarding school she attended as a teenager. In order for her to complete her story, though, she tells him they have to break into the now-abandoned building. Written by Jay Speziali and performed by Mike Delgadio and Addison Peacock, this is the demon of holy innocence.
Celeste Montgomery reached out to me three months ago and insisted on a meeting for an in-person interview. Before we met, she claimed to have pertinent information regarding the bizarre and unexpected closure of Holy Innocence Boarding School for Girls in upstate New York. We met at Darcy's Pint, a local dive bar just outside of Albany. This was her idea. I entered the tavern at 5 p.m. sharp. Celeste was already waiting for me in a booth near the far corner, sipping a gin and tonic. Her blonde hair was unkept and had been hastily put into a bun. She was young and attractive, but her bloodshot green eyes whispered of the pain she so desperately wished to purge. I sat across from her as she took another drink. I appreciate you taking the time to meet me, Miss Montgomery. Celeste is fine. Thanks, Celeste. You can call me John. Do you mind if I record our conversation? I can edit out anything you want to keep just between you and me. No problem at all. As the waitress walked by, Celeste motioned for another gin and tonic. She nodded and then asked to take my order. I'll have a coffee, thanks. Oh, and a shot of Bailey's with it? Celeste smiled at me just before she began tapping her fingernails on the wooden table. Her chipped black nail polish suggested this was habitual. I clicked on the recorder and looked up. Now, just take as long as you need and start with whatever you feel most comfortable telling me. Or, if you prefer, we can wait to begin. She smiled again with less sincerity and took a deep breath. I'd rather get right to it, if you don't mind. I guess the best place to start is at the beginning, huh? I nodded in agreement. I never wanted to transfer to holy innocence, but I didn't have much of a choice. I was a bad kid, I'll admit it. My parents were wealthy and never around, so what do wealthy parents who are never around do with bad kids? They send them to boarding school. And what year did you transfer? 2006, the beginning of my junior year. The waitress dropped off our drinks and Celeste quickly grabbed hers before continuing. Holy Innocence couldn't have been more different than the public school I had transferred from. It was run by six Catholic nuns and the dean, Dr. Winters. What were they like? How did they treat you and the other girls? I took a sip from my coffee. Celeste's nails tapped faster. They were strict. Really strict. There was a no-nonsense curriculum with harsh punishments. They even had this bizarre form of detention that bordered on abuse. They called it RAG, which stood for Repent and Grow. If we talked back to one of the nuns, we weren't allowed to speak for 24 hours. If we got caught sneaking out, we were locked in our rooms all weekend and lost social privileges. The worst was when we cursed or took the Lord's name in vain. The punishment for that was drinking an ounce of vinegar to cleanse our impure mouths. Jesus. Hey, careful now. <laughs> uh, how about the other girls? Was it hard being a transfer student? Celeste took another drink before answering, and I wondered how many she had had before I arrived. We got along okay. I mean, as good as you would expect a school full of angsty teenage girls to get along with one another. But we all had one thing in common. Oh, what's that? We all hated that place. And that kind of brought us closer together. The type of bond I would expect prisoners to have. Oh, that makes sense. I stirred my coffee, then Celeste grabbed my arm and stared into my eyes. I know the reason you wanted to speak with me, John. I can assure you, 
Something truly sinister lives within those walls. I leaned in closer. Can you tell me about the first night? The first night was like all the others, but I happened to be the first victim. Me and my roommate, Claire, were sitting in our dormitory and talking before lights out, like we did every night. We were drinking the last drops of a bottle of scotch I kept hidden under a loose floorboard. We each had one or two shots before falling asleep, and that's the last I remember of that night. Claire and I both woke up the next afternoon. A few of our classmates were shaking us awake as we had slept through class that day. I was disoriented, sore, and naked. I didn't even notice the blood at first. Not until I rolled onto my stomach and the other girls started screaming. Celeste took a long drink, killing the rest of her gin. I noticed her eyes beginning to well up. They were scratches. Claw marks, to be exact. Running down my back. Three-fingered and deep. Claire had matching wounds. After we showered, we realized our identical blemishes had formed inverted crosses on our torsos. I still have the scars. I can show you. No, no. It's okay. I believe you. Thank you. Initially, the nuns and Dr. Winters blamed the other girls for what happened to us, thinking there was some sort of deranged bullying going on. Claire and I pushed our beds together and kept an eye on the door at night. A few days later, hazy memories from that night started to come back to us and sink in. We both remembered distinct flashes of red, a skeletal head with horns, and being taken to a dark room. Throughout the next few months, it started happening to the other girls. Always the same, total memory loss or close to it, and the inverted cross scratches. Parents began pulling their kids out of school, and reporters started pestering the staff. Dr. Winters never let any of them on the property and even threatened expulsion and lawsuits to any students or parents who talked to the press. A few days later, one of the nuns, Sister Mary, went missing, gone without a trace. Celeste leaned in close. And there's more, but I'm going to have to show you. Show me? You and I are going to break into Holy Innocence tonight. I wanted to laugh again, but the sincere look on her face told me she was serious. I would be lying if I didn't admit that I was excited at the opportunity. To my knowledge, I would be the only reporter to have ever set foot inside the school. Well, I know the property's for sale, and, but aren't the doors chained? How would we get in? Celeste was visibly excited that I was on board. She downed the rest of her drink as she continued. Trust me, I know the damn place better than the people that built it. I spent a lot of nights exploring vacant rooms, hallways, and stairwells. If I remember correctly, there was an entrance at the southeast corner with a faulty lock. I would smoke in the woods late at night and use that door to sneak back to bed. What do you say, John? It's only 20 minutes from here. My heart started to race as a mixture of excitement and fear pulsated through me. With all due respect, Miss Montgomery, do you mind if I drive? Celeste climbed into my car and we hit the interstate. The drive was quiet for the most part. I inquired a few times as to what she was going to show me when we arrived. Each time I asked, she reassured me that it would be something I had to witness for myself. 
Around 7.15 p.m., Holy Innocence came into view. I can confidently say that the pictures do not do it justice. The Victorian monstrosity is, is nothing short of a castle, complete with turrets, stained glass, and a rather unwelcoming iron gate. A sign near the entrance read that the property had just been sold and would be undergoing construction in a few months. Turn left up here and follow this back road for a bit. It'll lead to a clearing where you can park. We'll be able to walk from there. The gravel clearing was exactly where she had remembered. The sun had completely set by the time we parked and climbed out of her car. Celeste handed me a flashlight from her purse as we walked through the woods towards Holy Innocence. And I knew this was her plan all along. As we reached the end of the tree line and stared at the enormous, barren fortress of a school, my heart began to race again. I had to try one more time. Look, before we go in, will you at least tell me why you have to show me what's in there? Are you a religious man, John? I've always found it best to answer honestly when taken off guard, so I did. I grew up that way, but I can't say I am anymore. That's what I figured. The reason I have to show you is that you wouldn't believe me if I told you. You're going to have to see what true evil looks like. I knew then it wasn't worth asking anymore. She was set in her ways. I contemplated whether she found it therapeutic to walk the halls with an outsider, or if she just needed the visuals to help her tell the complete story. Either way, I didn't have much of a choice but to follow her to the door she so vividly remembered being broken. Sure enough, on the southeast corner of the main building was an old wooden door with an iron knob. Celeste handed me her flashlight before gripping the knob with both of her hands. A wave of musty air filled my nostrils as we walked inside. The door opened to a narrow, spiraled staircase. Celeste led the way as I studied the stained glass that decorated the walls. The stairs ended at the mouth of a long corridor with 12 doors on each side. These were the dormitories. Mine was the last room on the right. I glanced in each room as we passed, and everything seemed relatively untouched. Beds and furniture stood flush against the wall, barren of the items they once held. But nothing was broken or overturned or out of place. We reached Celeste's old room, and she broke the silence once again as we entered. Sister Mary, the one that went missing before the school closed, she was the sweetest to us, despite her intimidating size. She would bring us warm milk before bed and would check in on us at night after the incidents began. Celeste walked to the foot of one of the beds. She would stand here and pray while we slept. Celeste slowly walked to the corner of the room and stood in place, shifting her weight. She bent down to lift a floorboard, reached inside, and retrieved an old, empty bottle of scotch. Bad habits start young, I suppose. Celeste put the bottle and board back and walked quickly out of the room. Come on, it's time to show you. I followed Celeste throughout the halls. The eyes of saints stared at us from their canvases as we passed. We walked by the old lecture halls and common rooms, and like the dormitories, they were intact and seemingly untouched. Through winding corridors and staircases, we eventually made our way to the center of Holy Innocence to the church. The eerie stillness washed over me as I examined the interior with my light. 
Rows of empty pews and religious statues stood as the only reminder that this sacred place was once full of life. Celeste beckoned me forward as she made her way to the back, towards the altar. Around the right side of the altar stood a single wooden door, out of sight from where the clergy once sat. Celeste turned the handle, and the door opened with ease. We entered a rather cluttered room complete with excess chairs, a piano, a stack of books, and other miscellaneous storage. I was puzzled. Celeste had led me to a storage room in the back of a church? You know, I always thought the nuns were strange. I'd spy on them a lot. It was pretty much the only entertainment I had since we didn't have TV. They were just different in the way they lived, spoke, and acted. Especially Sister Mary. She just seemed so fake. Everyone loved her, but I always had this feeling, you know? She illuminated a large statue of an unknown saint in the corner of the room. Here, help me move it. We walked to the side and pushed the massive structure from the wall. I would never have seen it if it wasn't for her. A small keyhole in the top right corner. The statue was covering a door that was perfectly constructed to resemble the surrounding white wall. Not only did Celeste know the secret door existed, she somehow had the key in her possession. For whatever reason, I couldn't bring myself to ask why. The only thing on my mind was the set of stairs the door had just opened up to, descending into unknown darkness. I followed Celeste down. My theory was that she was a liar. It was confirmed the night I saw her in the kitchen making our warm milk. She had no idea I was spying on her. She seemed normal at first, heating it up and pouring them into individual cups. The cups had our names on them, so we didn't accidentally grab the wrong one. After Sister Mary was finished, I noticed she poured some powder into Katie's cup. As we reached the bottom, the smell hit me, and I nearly vomited. Oh, sulfur. Rot. Celeste coughed as well. <coughs> Our flashlights lit up the room, and I, I looked in horror. It was what I could only describe as, as a torture chamber. Shackles hung from the ceiling, and dark stains covered the stone floor. The walls were decorated in unfamiliar symbols and words. Hung in the corner was a crimson robe, and above it was some sort of horned mask fashioned from a bovine skull. I was in total disbelief. My head spun as my brain attempted to process the information. I waited for everyone to fall asleep, and for Sister Mary's routine check-ins. Just as I imagined, she went to Katie's room last. Her roommate had already been pulled out of school by her parents, so she had the room to herself. After five minutes or so, Sister Mary pulled a very disoriented Katie from her bed and led her to this place. I followed the entire way, quietly creeping behind them. Sister Mary carried her like she was nothing. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. She stripped Katie naked and chained her to the shackles. I continued to stare at Celeste and listened in silent disbelief. Before Sister Mary started, she went over here. Celeste pointed her flashlight on the far wall. There was a large metal door, securely fastened with a massive iron latch. Miss Montgomery, what, what's, what's behind that door? It was some sort of 
what do you call it? Some sort of shrine or something. All I could see when it was open were the candles, dozens of them, and some sort of thing in the middle. What kind of thing? I'm not sure. It was hard to tell from the candlelight, but Sister Mary, she was talking to it. I couldn't understand what she was saying. We used to study Latin, but I couldn't understand the words, and she was talking so fast. I knew it was my only shot when she was in there, so I did it. I slammed the door closed and locked it. <laughs> Sister Mary didn't scream or anything. She just laughed. It was a crazy laugh and didn't even sound like her. I, I grabbed Katie and got her back to bed. I knew I couldn't tell anyone because they wouldn't believe me. I was the bad kid, and they would trust Sister Mary over me. My God, so she's still... <laughs> I looked back towards the door. Celeste wiped her tears as she tried to keep her composure. Someone just bought this property. I had to tell someone, and... You seemed so interested and trustworthy from everything I've read. I... I wasn't listening anymore. I walked toward the locked chamber and reached for the handle. Celeste ran up to me and clutched my wrist. Please, don't open it. Just as I grabbed the latch, Celeste and I jumped back in unison. I looked back and stared at her as all the color drained from her face. That door has been closed since 2006. In our fifth tale, two teenage girls break into an abandoned hospital, determined to find the morgue and enjoy the spooky ambiance therein. Written by K.G. Lewis and performed by Addison Peacock, Mary Murphy, and Atticus Jackson, let's find out if they're able to survive once they realize that the doctor is in. Help me up. I reached my arm out to Tabitha, who had already climbed through the broken window of the abandoned hospital. She was taller than me and able to reach the ledge easier. I tried, but I couldn't get enough leverage to hoist myself up. The pane of glass that once filled the window's frame lay in pieces on the ground. Not because of us, though. Most of the hospital's windows had been busted out a long time ago. She grabbed my outstretched hand and pulled me up until I was able to get my knee onto the ledge. By the time I made it all the way inside, she was already halfway down the dirty corridor. I followed behind her, my footsteps echoing through the open doorways and empty rooms that lined the hallway. I had to be careful to avoid the pieces of broken glass that littered the floor. The soles of my shoes weren't that thick and I didn't want to have to get another tetanus shot. 
Tabitha stopped when she came to an old wheelchair that was covered with rust and mildew. It was missing a front wheel and had several large holes in the fabric of the seat. Need a lift? She smiled as she grabbed the handles and shook it. The chair was in such bad shape that I expected it to fall apart in her hands. That's more your speed, Grandma. Even though we were the same age, Tabitha looked several years older than me. People would often ask if she was my older sister. One time, this lady at the grocery store referred to her as my mother. Ever since that day, I never let an opportunity to make her feel old pass me by. If I was your grandma, you wouldn't be wearing an A cup. She let go of the wheelchair, which caused it to fall over, and lifted her breasts to emphasize the size difference between us. You'll be wishing you had tits like these in 50 years when yours are dragging on the floor. I turned around as I passed her by and started walking backwards so I could gesture at my chest. I should have been paying more attention to where I was going because I tripped on a bedpan that was left in the middle of the floor. <laughs> Are you sure you don't need the wheelchair? I got up and brushed my pants off, then noticed I was standing in front of the door that led to the hospital's basement. Are you ready? Are you sure you are ready? Maybe you should take the elevator. I flipped her off and kicked the bedpan toward her. Tabitha and I were not your typical teenage girls. We had a bit of a dark streak in us. Most people thought we were witches or devil worshippers. We were neither. We just liked scary things, which included scary music, scary movies, scary books, and most of all, scary places. That's why we were in the old hospital, making our way down to the basement where the morgue was located. We pulled out our phones and turned on our flashlight apps as we began our descent. There wasn't going to be much natural light where we were going. We walked down two flights of stairs until we came to the open doorway that exited to the basement. The door that once stood in the frame was propped against the wall. We stopped and listened for a moment. I stepped out into the open and shined my light down the three hallways that branched off from where I stood. Which way? Why are you whispering? Who do you think is going to hear you down here? I don't think there are any patients left in the hospital. None that are living, at least. I held the light under my chin so that the shadows would distort my features. Remember that movie, The House on Haunted Hill? Is that the one with Jeffrey Combs as Dr. Vanicut? He was one of our favorite horror actors. Yeah. Doesn't this place kind of remind you of that movie? Sort of. Hey, Dr. Vanicut. Come out, come out, wherever you are. What was that? What? She quickly rolled around and tensed up as she shined her light into the empty room behind her. <laughs> gotcha. Ha ha, very funny. She looked down at her phone to check the time. We need to hurry up and find the morgue. It's getting late. We would have loved to spend the whole night exploring the hospital, but we didn't have time to. I was staying over at Tabitha's and her mother got off at midnight. We needed to be back at her house by then or we would be in deep shit. Since we had a limited amount of time, we both agreed that the morgue was the only place in the hospital worth checking out. Did you hear that? I'm not falling for that again. I'm serious. I shined my light down the hall in the direction I heard the sound. The only thing I could see was a sign 
hanging on the wall, gently swaying as if someone had just hung it up. Looks like you found the morgue. Tabitha shined her light on the wall, several feet above the sign. The dark letters were incredibly faded, and the G and U were gone completely. But it was obvious that the word once said, morgue, with an arrow pointing at the set of double doors at the end of the hall. Tabitha peered at the old metal sign as we approached. The doctor is out. I reached out and grabbed the sign by its rusty chain so I could turn it around. I'd seen plenty of old medical dramas to know what was written on the other side. The doctor is in. I placed the sign back on the wall. Doctors Nelson and Campbell reporting for duty. The morgue looked exactly as you'd expect it would, but with a lot more rust and mildew. There were several metal tables aligned in a row in the middle of the room. A few busted instrument trays lay in pieces on the floor. The coolest part, where the bodies were once stored, was embedded in the far wall. Most of the doors of the unit hung open, and a few of the empty drawers were pulled out. Maybe we should record a video, like they did in the movie, and see if any ghosts show up. While I walked over to the storage unit, Tabitha walked in the opposite direction. I could tell something had caught her eye by the way she kept her light focused on the corner of the room. I was too far away to see what she was looking at and was much more interested in opening the doors to the compartments that were still closed. I grabbed the cold metal handle of one of the doors and tugged on it. It wouldn't budge, so I planted my foot on the wall and pulled on it as hard as I could. The latch of the door released suddenly, causing the door to swing open much faster than I expected. That made me lose my balance and fall to the floor for the second time that evening. I glanced over to see if Tabitha witnessed my epic fail. Thankfully, she hadn't. If she had, I never would have heard the end of it. I grabbed onto the edge of the closest table and pulled myself up. There's someone else here. Dangling from her fingers was a large black backpack. I shined my light on the bag to get a better look at it. It was covered in a fine layer of dust. It looks like it's been sitting there for a while. Maybe someone left it behind. We weren't the first kids to explore the abandoned hospital, and I was sure we wouldn't be the last. This is an expensive backpack. It's not the kind of thing you just leave behind. Not unless you don't have a choice. She set the bag on the table in front of her. I could tell she was starting to get a little nervous. Let's open it and see who it belongs to. I walked over and stood on the opposite side of the table from her. I grabbed the zipper and was about to open it when I noticed the look on Tabitha's face. I turned around and followed her gaze to the door of the compartment I had opened, the one that had knocked me on my ass. I had forgotten all about it when Tabitha had showed me the backpack. We need to go. I took a step towards the open compartment. I didn't believe the desiccated body lying in the drawer was real. There had to be a logical explanation for it being there, right? Maybe they forgot it when they closed the hospital. I didn't really believe that. I just didn't want to accept the truth. They don't just forget bodies. It's probably the owner of the backpack. Maybe they got stuck in there and couldn't get out. I pointed at the compartment. The door was really hard for me to open. If they had crawled in there and shut the door, it was possible they got trapped. 
I don't care what happened. We need to leave and tell someone. She turned and started to walk back the way we came. I followed. We both pushed through the double doors and exited the morgue, but stopped short when we noticed the man standing in the middle of the hall, blocking our path. He was dressed in the long white coat of a doctor with his hands clasped behind his back. The coat buttoned up the side and had a high collar, like the ones the doctors used to wear back in the day. Even the man's face had the appearance of someone who had just walked out of a Dapper Dan ad from the 1920s. He started to walk towards us. We took several steps backward until we had our backs to the morgue doors. He smiled. I turned and pushed my way through the door, grabbing Tabitha's arm as I did so. I pulled her along with me until we were huddling at the back of the room. We shouldn't have come here. I expected the doctor to come through the door at any moment, but he never did. As the seconds stretched into minutes, I got the courage to walk back over to the doors. What are you doing? Tabitha made a move to follow me, but stopped short. I pushed my hand against the door and slowly started to open it. I whirled around to find the doctor standing in the middle of the room between us. Good evening, ladies. I quickly skirted the edge of the room and returned to Tabitha. The doctor followed me with his eyes. Which one of you would like to go first? Tabitha reached out and wrapped her arm around mine. I could feel her trembling. Neither one of us responded to the doctor's odd question. He spread his hands towards us. Come, come now. Don't be shy. You asked for a doctor. And here I am. We don't need a doctor. Of course you need a doctor. <laughs> Who else is going to perform your post-mortem? He patted the autopsy table he was standing in front of. Now, if I could get one of you to hop up on the table, we can begin. I led Tabitha around the opposite side of the table, intending to make a break for the door. We're not dead. We don't need autopsies. The doctor smiled and pointed to the body in the drawer. That's what he thought, but he looks quite dead to me. Why don't you leave the medical opinions to the professionals? I am the only one here that is qualified to determine your cause of death. Get ready to run. I reached behind me and felt for the backpack we left on one of the other tables. I had to set my phone down in order to grab it. The doctor placed his hands upon the table between us and leaned forward. So, which one? I swung the backpack as hard and as fast as I could. It connected with the doctor's shoulder and sent him stumbling to the side. I grabbed Tabitha's hand and started running for the exit. Right as I pushed the door open, Tabitha's hand was yanked out of mine. That's impossible. The doctor was on the other side of the room when he fell. Now he was just a few feet away, dragging Tabitha back towards the table. I couldn't leave my friend. I didn't think I'd be able to stop him on my own. Not when he could jump around the room like that. I didn't think he was human. 
He may have been at one time, but now he was something else. <coughs> if I left, she would surely die. I couldn't live with the guilt if I didn't try to save her. I ran at the doctor and threw my body against his, knocking the both of us to the floor and freeing Tabitha. Run! I crawled away from the doctor. She didn't need to be told a second time. I tried to follow her, but didn't get very far before I felt his cold hand grab my ankle and pull me back. We're not done yet. He let go of my leg and grabbed me by my hair as he stood up, keeping me in a kneeling position. I tried to pull myself free, but his grip was too strong. With his free hand, he reached into the pocket of his coat, pulled out a scalpel, and held it in front of my face. It glinted in the light of my phone, which sat on the table next to us. He smiled. I think I found your cause of death. He pulled my head back by my hair to expose my throat. My eyes followed the scalpel as he lowered it towards my neck. I frantically used my hands to feel along the ground for anything that I could use as a weapon. I didn't know what it was, and I didn't care. The scalpel was less than an inch away from my jugular. I didn't have time to be picky. I closed my fingers around the object and jabbed it behind me where I expected the doctor's head to be. <sighs> Whatever it was, worked. The doctor released his grip enough for me to pull myself free and run for the door. I looked down briefly at the rusty metal bar I held and let it fall from my grasp as I rushed through the doors. It must have come from one of the broken trays on the floor. I screamed when I saw the figure standing before me in the hall. Once I realized it was Tabitha, I hugged her briefly, then pulled her towards the stairwell at the end of the hall. We need to go, now! We ran down the hall, glancing behind us every other second to make sure we weren't being followed. I wasn't going to leave you, I swear. I tried to call for help, but I couldn't get any service down here. I was on my way back when you came out. It's okay, let's just get out of here. As we got closer to the stairs, I was beginning to think we were going to get away. I should have known better. I've seen enough horror movies to know a false sense of security usually ended in somebody getting killed. Leaving so soon? The doctor stepped out of a doorway in front of us. We came to an abrupt halt and started walking backwards toward the morgue. There was no way we were going to be able to escape, not when the doctor could appear wherever he liked. I stopped and turned towards Tabitha as I weighed our options. He can only take one of us. Don't do this. We can't win. You know we can't. I gave her hands a quick squeeze, then turned back to the doctor. You win. I'll go with you. It's nice to see you finally come to your senses. He walked up to me and gestured down the hall towards the morgue. After you. I walked down the hall, taking my time, the doctor a step behind me. I could feel Tabitha's eyes on me. I didn't want her to do anything stupid. I just wanted her to get out there and get help. When I didn't hear her leave, I stopped and turned around. Please, go. I could see the tears on her face. I knew I was asking a lot from her, but I couldn't think of any other way. 
I had been able to fight the doctor off twice. I might be able to keep myself alive long enough for help to arrive. I didn't think Tabitha would last long if she stayed. Please, I'm begging you, go. I stood there until she reluctantly turned around and ran into the stairwell and out of sight. The doctor turned me back around, guiding me towards the morgue. She won't get far. Death finds us all eventually. I ignored him as I tried to think of some way to save myself. As we approached the morgue, I glanced over at the sign on the wall, the one I had flipped over. Looking at the sign reminded me of what the doctor had said earlier. You asked for a doctor, and here I am. When he originally said that, I thought he was referring to when Tabitha called out to Dr. Vanekut. But Vanekut was a fictional doctor, and this sure as hell wasn't him. It must have been the sign. When I turned it over and revealed the message the doctor is in, it must have allowed him to appear. Maybe if I turned the sign back around, he would disappear. It was a long shot, but worth a try. When I was within grabbing distance of the sign, I lunged for it, but the doctor sensed what I was doing a fraction of a second before my fingers connected with it. He yanked me back by my other arm and twisted. <laughs> I should have known you'd try something. You've got a lot of fight left in you for someone that's already dead. <laughs> the pain was intense, but I didn't give up. I leaned forward and stretched my fingers out as far as I could. I was so close to grabbing the sign, but he was pulling me away, wrenching my arm back further. If I didn't reach it now, I was done for. <laughs> Let go of me! It was too late. It was too far away. Maybe not. I leaned back and kicked out with my foot. Time seemed to slow down as my shoe connected with the corner of the sign sending it flying. We both watched as it spun through the air on its way to the ground. No! The doctor lunged for the sign as it fell to the floor, but he wasn't fast enough. He disappeared as it clattered to the ground with the message, the doctor is out, facing up. I dropped down onto my hands and knees and placed my hand on the sign. I needed to touch it and make sure it was real. I considered hanging it back on the wall, but I didn't want to risk it. I got up and left. When I crawled out the window of the hospital, Tabitha came running out of the car to meet me and almost knocked me over as she hugged me. Fresh tears poured from her eyes. How did you get away? I'll tell you about it on the way home. I want to get as far from this place as possible. In our sixth and final tale, Miss Usher and August Dupont return for another mystery regarding an artist who believes that the ghost of his wife is killing the models he paints. Written by Troy H. Gardner and performed by Jessica McAvoy, David Alt, 
Nicole Doolin, Matthew Bradford, Jesse Cornett, and Atticus Jackson. Join us as we unravel the mystery of Orville's portraits. The gates of the Hall Estate jerked open just wide enough for me to pull the car through and drive down the long driveway to the old mansion. The sun had set during our trip out of the city, replaced by a looming full moon. It had been a long day, which I felt sure the night would match. I'd spent the entire afternoon running errands for August Dupin, my friend, employer, and frequent headache and planned on enjoying a relaxing evening in the solitude of my apartment with my friends Merlot and Netflix. When I'd stopped by August's brownstone with his dry cleaning and exhaustive grocery list, he'd surprised me with news that he'd been contacted by a woman seeking his help. We're needed to disprove sinister shenanigans at a haunted mansion, although proving would be a lot more fun. It's a shame I didn't buy that ghost hunting equipment. It looked like an art project. When do you want to investigate? August was already slipping into the dry cleaned coat I'd just brought, and I resigned myself to ghost hunting for the evening. I said little while he caught me up on the drive. Veronica Gower, a former actress turned agent, was concerned about the well-being of an old friend, a wealthy artist named Orville Hall. According to Veronica, over the last year or so, Orville had grown more distant and reclusive. He'd recently admitted to her that he believed his home to be haunted by his dead wife. There was much more to the story, but Veronica preferred to meet us at Orville's house to discuss it with him. Ever the amateur detective, August must have sensed my ill mood as he was uncharacteristically quiet on the rest of the drive. I parked the car beside Alexis and a Prius, presumably belonging to Veronica and Orville. I do love an understated mansion. Good thing you got on your mystery-solving suspenders. Oh, this is going to turn into a whole thing, isn't it? We exited the car and surveyed the place side by side. It wasn't hard to imagine how luxurious the estate had appeared in its heyday, but the yard was untended and a repairman was needed for the house proper. As far as possible haunting sites went, this one looked the part. August rubbed his hands together like a child on Christmas morning. Exciting, isn't it? Uh, you didn't have any plans anyway. I did. We strode to the front door, and August pressed the buzzer. Wine and TV don't count. By the time this wraps up and I bring you home, then drive to my apartment, it'll be time for bed. But it's all worth it because I have to get up early to bring you to your appointment in the morning. August nodded to himself, surely enjoying the reminder of his upcoming teeth cleaning. The door swept open, and we were greeted by a woman in her 40s, sporting such a vibrant crimson bob, I wondered if it was a wig. She was wrapped in a shawl and held an empty martini glass. 
I'm Veronica Gower, of course. You must be August and company. August flashed his perfect white teeth. Perfect thanks to the thousands in dental care he'd spent. I'd never met anyone who looked forward so much to dental visits. Hello, this is my good friend and assistant, Miss Usher. Don't forget chauffeur, accountant, and errand girl. Indeed, and appreciated confidant. And she's a great bowler. I feel like we're old friends already. Come in, please. Orville's in his studio. We need to make a refueling stop in the kitchen. If you'll follow me. I was thankful for the guide, as Veronica led us down a hallway and past several doors on the way to the kitchen. If the house feels familiar, it's simply because it is. Years ago, I suggested Orville rent out the property for film and TV projects. You've likely seen something shot here before. We entered the kitchen, and I realized I'd seen a blonde woman stabbed to death in some low-budget horror flick. She'd fallen back against that very same refrigerator, and then left a syrupy trail as she'd tried to crawl to safety. Just how big are the premises? I've never seen it all. There are rooms, primarily upstairs, that no one stepped foot in for years. Since Orville was widowed, he primarily keeps to his studio, the kitchen, master bedroom, bathroom. This Orville lives here alone? Veronica nodded at the bar. Martini, anyone? Yes, please. Extra dirty. Man after my own heart. <laughs> Miss Usher? No, thank you. What brought you to August? Veronica carefully poured vodka, vermouth, and olive brine into a shaker. You were recommended by Detective Garrett at Robbery Homicide. Good old Gary. Miss Usher, remind me to send him a thank you note for the referral. Noted. But if this is a case for robbery homicide... Veronica vigorously shook the shaker. Apparently it's not. Detective Garrett said there was nothing he could do. It's worse than dear Orville simply believing he's being haunted. You see, he hires professional models to pose for him. The last few have gone missing. He's convinced they've been killed by an otherworldly presence which stems from the house. How many models? Three. I'll admit it's a bit of a coincidence. But actresses, models, they're a flaky bunch. Yours truly no exception. <laughs> Veronica poured the two martinis and completed the concoctions with two olives apiece. Come, let me introduce you to Orville. August sipped his martini and followed Veronica out of the kitchen and down a second hallway. She paused beside a door as something rustled inside. Quick detour. She pushed the door open on a parlor. The walls were lined with bookcases and two large-backed chairs faced a fireplace. A twenty-something with Coke bottle glasses knelt by the fire, arranging logs. He looked up with a start. This is Peter, Orville's intern. A thankless job. 
I eyed August. But quite appreciated, I'm sure. He ignored us, speaking directly to Veronica. Orville wanted me to get this room ready, in case you want to entertain in here. Perhaps later. I think August and Miss Usher here should meet the cursed host himself. She closed the door on Peter and turned to us. He's in his studio. If Orville thinks he's cursed and his models keep dying off, what's he doing in his studio? The obvious. Painting a new model. I wasn't expecting that. In my book, three disappearances were three too many. Why risk a fourth? This is shaping up rather nicely. We entered a large studio filled with paint supplies and sculpting tools. A framed portrait of a stunning young woman hung predominantly on the wall, as if overseeing an artistic kingdom. Orville Hall stood in front of a canvas, a male model posed several feet away. Orville looked like an extremely handsome man had put on age makeup for some play, with graying temples and the occasional wrinkle line. This is August and Miss Usher. They're here to help. Nice to meet you both, even under the circumstances. Orville turned from his work in progress and gave August and I each a weak handshake. This is Billy. The model was a short young man with dirty blonde hair and big blue eyes. Orville had posed him in nothing but a pair of black jeans in a chair shaped like a hand. He was skinny and sported matching track marks on both arms. This was no professional model. It would seem after losing three, Orville had turned to the streets for fresh flesh to paint. How old are you? Eighteen. August raised an eyebrow my way. Sure, let's go with that. I'd like to hear about this ghost of yours, Mr. Hall. Orville looked up at the portrait on the wall. She had flowing brown hair and a flawless complexion. There she is, my beautiful bride, Ella, captured in her youthful perfection. Ours was a passionate love. She was a college student when we met. She was a caterer for my 30th birthday party thrown by Veronica. Best party I don't remember. <laughs> At least in the top ten. <laughs> we dated for six months before she left school and moved in here. I asked her to marry me, and for some reason, she said yes. <laughs> I could think of a mansion-sized reason a twenty-year-old would say yes. Uh, back in place, Billy. Sorry. Orville returned to painting while he spoke. We honeymooned in Paris and returned here. I was madly in love and had barely worked since Ella moved in. I sold a few sculptures, but I was too distracted to do much of anything when we weren't together. Then Ella suggested I paint her portrait. 
She picked out the perfect dress and had her hair done just so for me. She sat in here, and I painted her with laser focus. My love spewed forth through my fingers and the paintbrush and landed on that canvas and was easily my greatest work. The hours slipped by like minutes as the work kept me energized. Each brush stroke was like a nourishing bite of an apple. When at last I finished, I couldn't believe it. I truly captured life. I stepped back to share my joy with my wife. But Ella was perfectly still. I told her the painting was done, that she could move again, but she, she didn't hear me. I rushed to her side, but she was cold and stiff. I'm sorry. Someone died right here? On the side of the room. About where Veronica's standing. She took a casual step to the left. What was the cause of death? Mm, aneurysm. They said she had an undiagnosed brain condition. It was just a matter of time. They guessed that she'd been dead 15 hours before I finished her portrait. You captured her life and her death. Hmm. Youthful beauty is a blown bubble. Once you touch it, it pops. Tell me about the haunting. Uh, it started a year ago, when I found a window smashed with no explanation. I live alone, so things shouldn't move unless I move them. That stands to reason, doesn't it? But that's not how it's been. There was a broken glass in the kitchen. My books out of order, drawers left open. This one morning, I found my freezer in the basement just gone. And all the meat that had been inside was scattered around the floor, rotting. I came to the conclusion that I was either losing my mind or... Ella had returned from the grave. But I'm very clearly perfectly stable. It had been nearly ten years since her death, so I thought I'd appease her restless spirit by painting again. In the last six months, I've painted three portraits. Two women and one man. They were very nearly... As perfect as Ella's. I felt alive for the first time in a decade. In turn, Peter quietly slipped into the room and to Orville's side. He tilted his head, admiring the work in progress. This sitting room's warming. Is there anything else before I leave for the night? Yes. Yes, one thing. Tell August here... What happened to my last three portraits? Yes, right. 
Um, a few weeks after each one was completed, I had messages to frame them and leave them ready for a courier to deliver them to Veronica's office. <laughs> Funny thing is, I didn't buy a single portrait, let alone all three. I'm no great art lover. I'm Orville's friend, not a fan. <laughs> What's the difference? A friend shields your bullshit, while a fan blows it back in your face. <laughs> Where are the three portraits now? Orville and Veronica shared a shrug. I turned to Peter. How'd you receive word to send the portraits? A sticky note's waiting for me. Same as Orville usually leaves for me. I'm sure you didn't keep them. If I knew, I would have. Well, if I knew, I wouldn't have sent them, I guess. Right, right. Have you witnessed any of this unexplained activity? He gave us a weak smile, eyes flicking toward Orville. No, I'm sorry. Were you already working for Orville when the strange occurrences began? I showed up later. Several weeks later. <laughs> that, that's... That's all for tonight, Peter. Good job. See you tomorrow. Good night. Peter gave us another weak smile and slipped out of the room. I felt a pang of jealousy that Orville's assistant got to go home. I was so pleased at how my work was turning out. I looked through hundreds of headshots and portfolios, but... I couldn't settle on a fourth model with that perfect mix of youthful beauty. I decided to rehire one of the models I'd worked with for another sitting, but I couldn't get a hold of any of them. That's when I realized what the true problem is. What's that? Everyone who poses for Orville ends up dead. Try to catch up. Um... Billy dropped his pose, but quickly snapped into place. Sorry, stupid question maybe, but why don't you stop painting? Or just do fruit? I've tried. It's been three months since the last one, but I must paint. Ella demands it. He looked reverently to his wife's portrait. And he's had Peter in his ear, urging him to get back at it. Peter's pointless if there's no more art. What precisely happened to the three models? Within a few weeks of sitting for Orville, each disappeared. One in her apartment with signs of struggle, one while walking home from a bar, and another simply didn't show up for her day job. I know they're dead. I can feel it. But... but I'm not gonna die, right? <laughs> Billy chuckled, although his eyes betrayed his nerves. Orville returned to the canvas. This time will be different. When I'm done, you'll stay here, where I can keep an eye on you. Nothing's bound to go wrong with that plan. <laughs> You're in good hands, kiddo. <laughs> Billy stood and shook his head. Maybe I should go. Sorry. But I'm not done capturing you. 
And I paid for the night. Billy scratched at his arms and sniffled, then sat back. Good. Very good. Just like that. That nearly vacant look in your eyes. That's the beauty. Billy, are you a hustler? Um... Of course he is. <laughs> Veronica plucked an olive out of her glass and popped it in her mouth. And none of the agencies would send Picky Orville here anyone. And I wasn't about to risk any of my clients. So I sent Peter out for a junkie boy whore. No offense. So you could see what exactly the problem is. Maybe I could take a bathroom break? There's a lot happening right now. I could use a refuel. Any takers? Thanks. August handed her his empty glass. With Veronica and Billy out of the room, Orville turned back to his work during the so-called break, humming and lost in his own world. August stepped away from Orville and turned to Ella's portrait, tilting his head. Thoughts, Miss Usher? Orville's a talented painter, although I dare say he seems addicted to his craft. Creativity is a vice. What's the simplest explanation for everything? That he's suffering from dissociative breaks. It's all his doing, but his mind's blocking it. Dull. What would be the most fanciful? That Ella's ghost is urging Orville to paint and is punishing his models? Hmm. Doesn't feel like a haunting to me. That is, if one were foolish enough to believe in ghosts. <laughs> August flashed a smile. Veronica returned before too long and handed August his martini. You're a saint. She clinked their glasses. I've been called worse. <laughs> Billy shuffled back into the room and resumed his spot. He had a sleepy smile and looked much calmer than before. I knew that telltale expression. He's high. Looks more low to me. I'm good. Pants on and mouth clean. This is the easiest night ever. Billy settled into the hand chair, his eyelids drooping. I gazed at his portrait in progress, which now appeared much more alive than its subject. Just like with Ella. Orville's portraits remained pristine shrines to youth while his models decayed. August turned to Orville. I think I'd like to look around the house while you do your good work. Veronica, I can trust you to keep an eye on things. Certainly. Think you'll find any ectoplasm? Unfortunately not. Ready when you are, Miss Usher. August and I left the studio and began a quick sweep of the first floor. What exactly are we looking for? Missing paintings. It stands to reason if Peter prepared them to be sent to Veronica, but she never received them, then they didn't even leave the premises. I agree. Assuming Veronica's telling the truth. Assuming that, this all comes down to the relationship between artist and art. As we moved from room to room, 
thought about how someone could go years without entering part of his own house. When I was 22, I had this apartment with a breakfast nook, which I cleaned out and decorated. For weeks, I religiously ate cereal and read the paper in that nook every morning. And then I sort of fell out of the routine. When I moved out of the apartment, I boxed everything up, and when I cleaned out that nook, I found a newspaper that was eight months old. We should have brought breadcrumbs. We took the creaking stairs to the second floor. At the top, he turned left. There's dust on this side of the banister. I'd say the master bedroom is on the right. If Hansel and Gretel had your powers of observation, they wouldn't have needed breadcrumbs. The rooms were a monotonous cluster of unused guest rooms, some of them housing sculptures, tools, boxes, and assorted objets d'art. Should we be checking closets and under beds? Not if my theory is correct. Care to share? And risk being wrong? <laughs> I'm only 95% sure I figured this one out. That's a change. What's got you off your game? We re-entered the hall, and I moved toward the last door on the left. You're displeased with me tonight. And there's the matter of Billy. Before I could press the issue, I opened the door and froze. The room stank of sweat and body odor. Three portraits, two women and one man, all basking in youthful beauty, leaned against the walls. A freezer hummed quietly in the corner. There were scattered needles and burnt spoons in the corner. I felt like we'd walked into a madman's nest. Orville's insane. Assuming he's not lying, it could be dissociative identity disorder. Could it? August stepped past me and opened the freezer's lid. We can mark those three missing models as found. Grimacing, I approached the freezer. It had to be true, but I wished it weren't. Three bodies were shoved inside. They were pale blue, once beautiful faces frozen and smashed together. I handed August my phone. Call Detective Garrett. I'll subdue Orville if he tries to run. I hurried out of the room and down the hallway with August trailing, already dialing my phone. Miss Usher, that's not the solution. Please, wait in the studio for me. I took the stairs two at a time, August's voice growing distant as he spoke to Garrett. I did my best to calm my nerves before I faced Orville again. It felt like another world when I re-entered the studio. There was Veronica, haughtily drinking, Orville obsessively painting, and Billy barely showing any signs of life. The painting would be complete soon. Would Billy survive once his healthy doppelganger came to life? What do you think of the house? Cozy. I forced a smile. As long as Orville didn't suspect we'd found the bodies, we could wait for the police in comfort. August entered and tossed me my phone. 
Police are on their way. What? Why? Marvel dropped his paintbrush and licked his lips. I glared daggers at August for disrupting the peace. Do you have anything on you? I don't think so. Relax, everyone. The police are only coming here because Miss Usher and I found three corpses upstairs. Everything's fine now. Orville stumbled back and nearly tipped over his canvas. Veronica popped an olive in her mouth. Billy sniffled and wiped his nose, then started rocking back and forth, whimpering. What are we missing, August? It's Ellen's doing. It has to be. I told you she killed the others. <gasps> not quite. If I'm not mistaken, which I know I'm not, the first so-called paranormal occurrence was a window being smashed in. This was no ghost manifesting herself, but a run-of-the-mill break-in. Since then, those dishes and books that have moved on their own have simply been signs of your squatter. Squatter? Just because someone broke in one night doesn't mean he left in any hurry. Your squatter didn't leave until he had a good enough reason to, and of course a spare key so that he could get back in, no problem. I posit this stranger left this house precisely three times, and always returned with a body for the freezer. That's not possible, is it? There's a room upstairs that suggests someone's been staying there for quite some time. Orville and Veronica looked up, craning their necks, scanning the ceiling. Well, I feel itchy all over. Are we safe? I mean, where is the squatter now? He's gone from the nest. I believe he eavesdropped on our conversation and then fled once we began our search. When the police arrive, they'll begin the manhunt, but odds are he'll slip away. I recommend a new security system and police patrols. I don't know what to say. Uh, I, I thought I could still feel Elder's presence. But you're telling me it was some stranger? Had he hoped it was true? Had Orville wished Ella had returned from the grave, even if it meant she was a murderous poltergeist? What do we do? We'll have to sit tight and answer the police. Oh, so tedious. And my suspenders are digging into my neck, but it's the right thing to do. Yes, yes. Uh, while we await the police, there's the matter of my payment. Really, August? Of course. You've more than met expectations. What do you have in mind? I know it sounds like it's bordering on serial killer trophy territory, but I'd like Billy's portrait in progress. It's not complete. Oh, just give him the painting. You're not going to finish with the police scouring the house. Orville stepped away from the easel and gazed up at Ella. Fine. None of this matters anymore. Billy was up and pulling a t-shirt over his head. I'm done? Sweet. Uh, can I get a ride before the cops get here? We all need to stay put. Do you have anything on you? I'm clean. Ms. Gower, I'd suggest burgers or chips to sober the little guy up. Coffee, too. What about vitamins? Which ones? All of them. A to Z. 
I've played a domestic before. I'll see what I can do. She left and I turned to Orville, who was still lost, staring at Ella. Maybe we should wait for the police in the parlor. What? Oh, oh yes. Uh, there, there should be a fire going. Come on. Billy, if you'd be good enough to bring your portrait along. Sure. Billy shuffled behind us with the still wet painting as Orville led us toward the parlor. <laughs> the lights went out and we were plunged into immense darkness. I froze as a tingle crept across my neck. Oh, circuits again. How often do you lose power? Oh, the wiring's held together with duct tape. Just to, just follow my voice. We're almost there. It's the squatter. He didn't leave after all. It happens every few weeks. It's nothing. August and I shuffled behind Orville's footsteps as my eyes started to adjust to the dark. How could someone not realize there was a stranger in his house? Picture that apartment you've been so eager to get back to all night. How can you be sure there's no stranger waiting for you right now? Can you ever be certain there's no one in your home doing whatever it is strangers do on their own? When I'm there in the room. But you can't be in every room at once. Orville stopped at the end of the hall and opened a door. For just a moment, I pictured a stranger waiting on the other side. But the room was empty, of course. Just the crackling fireplace, chairs, and bookshelves. I'm going to give Veronica a hand. Be careful. As Orville left, Billy set the portrait down by the mantel and collapsed in an easy chair. I looked back and forth between Billy and his portrait. He looked more awake while the shadows danced across his painting. August stroked his chin, his elbow resting on the mantel. I sat in the chair opposite Billy and rolled my neck. My suspenders were digging in, and I was ready for the night to end, although it would take hours to deal with the police. Time will go quicker if we talk, or at least the illusion of time. All I wanted was a medium amount of Merlot and some Netflix. I'm not seeing home tonight. What if you never did? What? <laughs> I didn't mean that ominously. I mean, what if you moved in with me? There's more than enough room for two people. Tempting, but I think that might be veering into indentured servitude territory. Not if Billy here takes on your errand girl duties. Uh, to be clear, Billy, I'm offering you a position running errands for me and doing chores. This is contingent on you entering rehab tomorrow. I'll pay for it, and you'll be expected to follow the program and stay clean. There will be no second chances. Are you interested? What? <laughs> um, really? You want to pay for rehab and then hire me? Win, win, win. A very long time ago, a stranger offered me a lifeboat. I've been meaning to do the same. Um, okay. Yes. That's one yes. 
Miss Asham? It's a hard why not from me. It'll cut down on my commute at least. Splendid. August, this could blow up spectacularly in your face. If you're going to fail, fail big. A side door creaked open. I turned to ask Veronica what she'd managed to come up with, but a fist slammed against my head. I fell out of the chair, my ears buzzing. August. I shook my head, trying to get my bearings. August leaned in close as he helped me up. I was wrong about one thing. Peter stood behind Billy, holding a kitchen knife to the teen's throat. A trickle of blood ran down Billy's neck. Peter licked his lips and frowned. Don't, don't move, or I'll, I'll kill him right here. I shared a quick look with August. He held up four fingers and tapped his chin. Sign language for talk. Why are you doing this? Because I need the portrait and you ruined everything. Everything! You've been living here, haven't you? Of course. This place is huge. Please! Let's talk this out. There's nothing to talk out. I'm taking the portrait and I'm leaving now. I want to hear your story. We found your room. Mine was mugged. They almost killed me. But I got away and I broke in here to recoup. You made it a home. Exactly. I took some pills to recover and I saw Ella's painting. The artist's hand was invisible. The brush strokes had merged along a canvas to form life itself. I could practically hear her voice from beyond the grave. I still can. I stole a glance August's way. He was shifting away from me like a glacier. It should have been me. I stood a better chance subduing Peter, but we were already locked in this lane. You hid from Orville for weeks. Easy enough in this place. But you didn't stay hidden for long? Peter sighed and shook his head. He was clearly on edge, ready to kill. Orville wasn't painting. Bella's portrait was perfection, but I needed more from him. So you appeared one day and offered to help out? Unpaid internship. Win-win, really. I urged him to get back to the painting. He followed your advice. And the next portrait was just as good as Ella's, wasn't it? Not quite. The other portraits were silent. He captured life with Ella, but he couldn't duplicate the process as long as the models were still alive. You can't Xerox life. That's why you did it? There was August, inching closer to the chair by the fireplace. It felt like he had ages before he'd circle behind Billy and Peter. You murdered three people. To perfect his art. Once the models were dead, their portraits were finished. I, I can hear their humming now. You'll see. Once Billy dies, the canvas will be transformed. It's beautiful. Billy was racked with sobs. Peter's knife dug deeper. I fought the urge to rush them, knowing Peter could sever Billy's jugular before I reached them. You're going to release Billy this second. August had stopped at the chair beside the portrait. Peter spun from me to him, 
keeping behind Billy. The hair on the back of my neck rose. This wasn't what I had planned. No. You're going to hand Billy his portrait, and we're going to leave. The fire danced across his thick glasses. He pressed the knife closer, drawing a fresh rivulet from Billy's throat. Please! Please! I flexed my knuckles, ready to jump Peter the first chance I saw. August raised Billy's portrait and promptly hurled it into the fire. The edges of the canvas blackened and caught fire, and Peter dropped the knife. No! No, 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 no! Peter shoved past August and threw himself onto the floor. The paint melted, running together like tears. I rushed to Billy and pulled him back. Peter's frantic yells turned into howls of pain as he grabbed at the blazing painting. His fingers burned, and his singed hair crackled. Orville and Veronica ran into the room, both going pale. Good God! This wasn't about the relationship between artist and art at all. It was about the audience. I inspected the wound on Billy's throat. Are you all right? Yeah. As Orville Hall's monument to youth turned to ash, the color returned to Billy's face. As the lights come back on, our stories come to an end. Please remember to be kind and rewind. And visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member. This audio production is copyright 2019 by Creative Reason Media Inc., all rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.